0: And the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli, this is Fangraphs Audio. My guest in this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the managing editor of Fangraphs himself, or I should say the managing editor of Fangraphs himself, Dave Cameron. And in what follows, as he does every week, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. Sometimes people will ask me, listen to they'll stop me on the streets of the town in which I live, and they'll say... Carson, is it really true that dave cameron is capable of analyzing all baseball but is this edition of fangraphs audio and in fact as all previous appearances by dave cameron on fangraphs audio prove without exception yes he is in fact dave cameron is in fact capable of analyzing all baseball simultaneously you might say oh yeah does dave cameron talk about the texas rangers and their late season futility to which question i will answer yes and then you might say well, okay, but how about does he discuss Bronson Arroyo's excellent start for the Cincinnati Reds in the second game of that team's National League Divisional Series against the San Francisco Giants? To which I also respond: Yes, he talks about that, and he also talks about Joey Votto's place in the Cincinnati Reds, and he talks about Jim Johnson's late inning failures for the Baltimore Orioles against New York Yankees, and he talks about what the first game of the Cardinals and Nationals National League Divisional Series tells us about starting pitching in the playoffs. It's all here, and of course, uh, so much more of it, because it's an episode of Fangraphs Audio, in which Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball, and it begins right now. And then uh, the other team wants you not to win them. They want to win the playoff game.
1: This is uh, introducing the playoffs to three-year-olds, I think
0: is yeah. the title of the podcast. Yeah, the playoffs are important. Well, the playoffs are really – the real thing is the play-in games. Those are very important. Those happen – we haven't talked since those happened. Correct. Mm, so did that work? I mean, that the interesting thing about the play-in game um, – is, is that it penalizes a team for only qualifying for the wild card, even though one more team qualifies.
1: Right. I mean, I think less than it penalizes a team, it rewards you for winning the division, right? So, like, last week we saw, like, when we talked last week, I think the Aves were still two or three games out of the first place in the ALF, uh, and they were playing the Rangers. It seemed like they, they needed to sweep Texas in order to avoid the play-in game. Uh, which seemed unlikely, and, uh, that's exactly what they did. So they won the division on the final day of the regular season, and by virtue of that, they just advanced the division series against the Tigers, which isn't going so well to begin with, but at least they're in the playoffs, whereas Texas, by virtue of, uh, losing that series and, uh, having to play in the play-in game, ended up having their season end on Friday before they even got to the playoffs. So I think, you know, what we saw was, um, the importance of the division title, you know, kind of highlighted in the AL West race, where Oakland got a, uh, passed the playoffs by winning the division, and Texas uh, had their se- season end two days later.
0: A lot of hand wringing uh, concerning um, the Texas Rangers, and I, I guess um, their inability to, uh, to seal deals uh, because now they've uh, what? Well, so uh, they lost in the World Series two years ago. Last year, they were within a strike a couple times, um, and this year, they weren't even able to get into the playoffs. Um, after having a a sizable lead in the middle of the season. Is that – now, we know that these are things, or I should say, are these things that could happen randomly?
1: Well, sure. I mean, you know, we've seen random events happen before that uh, are improbable, like people winning the lottery. So, you know, we know that um, things don't always have a narrative behind them and there isn't always a uh, character clause that goes along with teams fading in the second half of the season. Uh, but I do think it's interesting that, you know, for the third year in a row, the Rangers finished in a somewhat disappointing manner. Uh, you know, maybe two years ago you wouldn't necessarily have pegged them as the best team in baseball, so saying that they only lost the World Series is disappointing, might be a little bit of a reach. But, you know, I think last year most people expected them to do really well in the playoffs, and they, they came really close and, uh, as you said, couldn't feel the deal a couple times being one strike away. This year they got off to a start in April, I think, that, raised expectations uh because they were so good that first month of the season. I remember there were discussions on Twitter uh over whether we'd seen a team that was this good across the board in, you know, 20, 30 years, who were putting the Rangers in the in the class of the 99, 1998 Yankees and kind of discussing, like, how many games could this team win, how much are they going win the division by. You know, when they had a seven or eight game lead over the Angels in April, it seemed like it was a foregone conclusion that they were going to run away with the ALS. And then in the second half of the year, they just, uh, <laughs> you know, sputtered, and uh, down the stretch, you know, a five-game lead with nine to go is a pretty sizable advantage, and they frittered that away, and then, you know, a one-game uh, winner-take-all game against uh, Joe Saunders at home, you, you should be able to win that, and they scored one run, so, you know, I think that uh, the Rangers have done a lot of poor things when it mattered, and, you know, whether that's a sign of a lack of character or a lack of talent or randomness is hard to say for sure, but, um, you know, I think if you're a Rangers fan, you have to be frustrated with how the last three years have ended.
0: There was a plate appearance and of course Josh Hamilton did not have a very good last week of the season. Uh there was really
1: last, last two months.
0: Is that true? I mean because I know that you had written about his plate discipline at one point uh at a certain point in the season he appeared to be succeeding in spite of uh a total lack of discipline. About a month later I think you wrote a follow-up uh w- you know which seemed to suggest that his plate discipline was had caught up with him. And, and so what happened after that? I mean, did, was he, did he go, did he regress a little bit upwards? What happened after that?
1: Yeah, so basically in April and May, he was amazing. And that's when I wrote the article, Josh Hamilton, King of Swings, that noted that he was basically succeeding with an approach that no one had ever succeeded in baseball before. We've seen, guys like, Vladimir Guerrero, Nomar Garcia-Para, be really good aggressive hitters, but they made a lot of contact. And Josh Hamilton wasn't making a lot of contact and was still really good, which was, uh, which was unusual. And, uh, you know, that caught up with him in June and July, especially in July. He was horrendous. I think mean, he posted a WRC plus of 48 in July. Um, he benched for a few days, actually, because he was so bad. Uh, you know, in August, they talked about how he was making some adjustments. His numbers rebounded, but it was almost entirely a, a bad adjustment. Uh, there wasn't really any evidence in his play-discipline numbers that he was taking more pitches or that he was uh, really improving his selectivity. And in August, he posted his highest strikeout rate of the season. So. He was a slightly above average hitter in the last couple of months of the year but well below average in the in the previous two months so I think over the course of the final four months of the season he goes to the WRC plus with about 110 which is you know not the worst thing ever but it's not very good for a guy who's uh, you know supposed to be an MVP level bat and makes the you know routine saw in center field when balls were hit right out of an important situation
0: he had a plate appearance in that play-in game against Brian mattis that I believe yep. was a three pitch strikeout including at least one pitch that was well within the zone. And he didn't, it's not that he just struck out, but it it looked like that was a foregone conclusion. He looked hopeless,
1: and that was the final at bat, uh, his final at bat, probably as a ranger. Uh, certainly of the season, it, was, it, came, it took place in the eighth inning. Um, and Maddox just overpowered it. And now Maddox has turned into a pretty good bust-handed reliever. Um, but for a player of Josh Hamilton's talent to look just completely hopeless, uh you know that's frustrating and i think that's why the the rangers fans let him know it and let it you know gave him some booze and probably uh helped hasten his exit from the team because when you have your best player theoretically your best hitter at least um at the plate in a play-in game situation where you know it's win or go home you want to at least see them put up a fight and josh hamilton looked like a three-year-old and that at bat, and uh you know i think kind of typified the um, frustration with Hamilton is that he can be very, very good and very, very bad in the same game even. And so, um, you know, when you have expectations for a guy with Hamilton's talent to watch him be that bad is, is tough.
0: Okay. Now, uh, we have you here and we have the playoffs going on. I don't necessarily mean, I, I don't need to, uh, construct the narratives for you or push you in one way or the other, but I'm, I'm curious as to at this point, what is exciting you apropos the the playoffs? What's What what are you thinking about?
1: Uh, well, you know, I think the uh, way Bronson Arroyo pitched last night is pretty interesting. I mean, you know, I think when most people looked at this Red giants matchup, they expected it to be a pretty close series. Both teams were pretty good. And, uh, you know, the fact that the Reds slated Arroyo to pitch game two was a bit of a head-scratcher. I mean, you know, Matt Latos ended up pitching game one because of Johnny Cueto's injury, but Latos was pretty clearly a better pitcher than Bronson Arroyo and by lining Arroyo up to start game two, they were potentially giving him two starts in the series if it went to five games, uh, or at least he would be the uh, reliever out of the pet if Cueto wasn't available again, where um, Leto, by pitching game three, was probably only available for that one game. So it seemed like a little bit of a, um, a maybe a mistake by Dusty Baker, and then Arroyo goes out and throws a one-hitter and uh, makes him look like a genius. And Jeff Sullivan had a really interesting post on kind of the way he changed arm angles and really kept hitters off balance. And, you know, I think it's, it's kind of interesting to watch guys like Arroyo, um, and you know I referenced on Twitter that we saw Orlando Hernandez used to do this all the time in the playoffs, where he would come in and do funky arm angles and drop down and throw sidearm and then throw over the top and throw a 65 mile an hour curveball. It can be kind of fascinating when you're used to the Justin Verlander's and CC Sabathias of the world to watch this guy who throws 88 to 90 doing it with funk and uh, you know a little bit of deception and delivery. And for me, that was kind of the story of the weekend was looking around baseball and seeing how many of these teams were relying on pitchers who, you know, aren't necessarily the guys you think you want to hand the ball to in the playoffs, at least based on their pedigree. I mean, Saturday we had Doug Pfister versus Tommy Malone, which is two guys who were considered to be non-prospects coming up to the minors. who were both change-up guys, uh, you know, threw a lot of strikes but didn't have strikeout stuff, and um, now they're facing off in game two of the division series. And, you know, I think there's a, a lot of these guys in baseball where you look around and say, huh, these aren't the guys we'd expect to be pitching in the playoffs, but they're pitching pretty well.
0: Yeah, I mean, with Arroyo, I mean, he pitched well in this one game. It, it might have been one of the best starts for him of the season. I'm assuming it was, or at least at least close to it. Is there anything about this situation? Is there anything about uh, the pitcher um, entering the situation, maybe something like experience that would give him an advantage, or is this just one of those situations where he happened to have a very good game in a, in a very important uh, situation?
1: Well, I think the funny thing with Arroyo is, you know, he was terrible last year. He had played 48 home runs, uh, almost set a major league record. Um Arroyo was legitimately an awful, awful pitcher last year. Uh, this year he turned his, his, uh, life around basically and had a pretty good year for the Reds. He wasn't, uh, you know, amazing. He's, uh, you know, kind of a, a middle rotation guy, but he wasn't that different from, uh, you know, Kyle Loesch or one of these other guys, um, who just throws a lot of strikes and, you know, doesn't give up enough, doesn't give up too many home runs to ruin the, the fact that he's constantly pounding the zone. And, uh, you know, it doesn't get a ton of strikeouts, but it was a serviceable number three or number four starter. And, uh, you know, so for Arroyo to have a game like that, um, I don't think it should be too shocking. Um, you know, the, I think one of the things that people still have this impression of the Reds that they're, uh. Uh, you know, a pitching or a, a slugging team, but it's really their pitching has been pretty good this year, and Lo, or, uh, Arroyo is part of that. So, um, you know, in San Francisco, in that park, um, you know, on a, a colder evening, I, I'm not too shocked that he was able to pitch well, um, against a team that's, you know, not a, not an offensive force.
0: Hey, so, um, another question about another Reds player. Joey Votto, uh, and I've seen this graphic more than once. Joey Votto, since returning from the DL, has, um at least during the regular season portion of it, had zero home runs. Yeah. Uh, and in playoffs
1: had, so far, has has no extra base hits
0: either. Right, but he had he also had a 505 OBP in uh, since returning from the DL. Yeah, correct. He is basically like like uh, the original Billy Hamilton was at this point. You know, you have these weird like Eddie Stanky. He is the Eddie Stanky of the, of the major leagues right now. Is there any is there any other player who has that skill set? And I guess my question is like why aren't uh pitchers going after him? Is it because they have this idea of the old or pre-injury Joey Votto in their head?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of if you just decided that Joey Votto was injured and, you know, his knee was affecting his power, so you were going to gas one down the middle at 96, pretty good chance he could still hit it a pretty long ways. My guess is part of the fact that Joey Votto has no home runs is because he's getting pitched to like Joey Votto. If you started pitching to him like he was Luis Castillo, I think his slugging percentage would rise dramatically. Uh, but I do think that, you know, his knee is certainly affecting him. Uh, there's no question that he he's not driving the ball like he normally does, and he's not the offensive force that he normally does, but at the same time, he's still got fantastic play discipline. He's not going to chase pitches out of his zone. He knows his own limitations, so uh, he's basically decided to just draw a lot of walks, get on base a ton, and hope that Ryan Ludwig and Jay Bruce can drive him in. And, you know, if you're a... A guy battling from injury trying to help your team win, and you recognize your own limitations like that to adjust your game in order to help your team. And, you know, the result was a 500 on-base percentage. That, that says something for your intelligence and, and your abilities.
0: Yeah, and I don't know if if you saw it, but I would certainly direct anyone's attention to uh, Jeff Sullivan's post. I think it was his series preview of, uh, of Reds-Giants. And there's a spray chart. He included a, sp- a spray chart of Joey Votto since his injury or since returning from yep. injury. And... There's basically nothing in right field. Yeah. Uh, But, like, if you look at, like, the left field line, there's, like, a a mass of dots. Uh, Right.
1: I think, you know, Votto has traditionally been an opposite field power guy. Um, You know, in the first half of the season before he he got his knee injured, I think at one point he had, you know, 17 or 18 doubles to left center field. He led the major league. And he's a left-handed hitter. So you don't usually see left-handed hitters leading the league in doubles to left uh, but that's Votto. I mean, he's got a, a lot of opposite field power. Uh, right now, he doesn't necessarily have the power, so it's turning into opposite field singles, but he's certainly capable of um, spraying the plate, and, you know, if the if the pitchers are going to pitch him away, he's going to, you know, dunk the ball into left field, and they can pay for it. Uh,
0: okay, turning our attention to Cardinals Nationals, we don't have to, we have to necessarily hit every series in every game, but uh, turning to the Cardinals Nationals, uh, as we record this, uh, games, uh, game two of that series is, uh, not not very f- far away. Um, on Sunday, first game of that series, Adam Wainwright l- literally had uh, one of the best starts of his career, at least in terms of uh, fit minus first start. I think it's still, it was like one of the top 10 until he walked Kurt Suzuki, which is the uh, last batter he faced in the entire game. It actually was the lowest fit minus he'd posted for any start in his career ever, which is good. It's a good thing to have happen during the playoffs. Uh on the other side uh for the Nationals Gio Gonzalez threw more balls in uh, on Sunday than he had for the entirety of the season his previous high coming of the season was 50 he threw 51 uh he threw just barely over 50% of his pitches for strikes Gio Gonzalez has one of his worst starts of the season um at least in terms of you know what he can control Adam Wainwright has one of the best starts of his career uh turns out Nationals win This is just a thing that happens, I guess, but it's magnified by the fact that it's uh, Game One of a short series. Yeah, I think that's a prompt. I don't know. uh, That's not really a question. It's a prompt. It's a prompt. Right. Go go for it. Yeah.
1: uh, uh, To to me, I think that this game is a little bit of an example of the fact that your starting pitcher is an overrated variable in the playoffs. I think uh, you know, all through the '90s, we heard talk about the Braves were always the the favorite in the World Series, but they had Maddox, Blaun, Smoltz. Uh, Steve Avery, you know Denny Nagel Institute, whatever fourth starter they had at the time, you know the recent Phillies teams with Roy Halladay and Chris Lee and Cole Hamels and Roy Oswalt and Dan Worley were, you know, supposed to be uh the, the favorites to win multiple World Series. They did win one, but uh you know I think overall we've seen that the the teams that have amazing playoff rotations don't win as often as they might be expected to based on how how much they're talked up as having a big advantage. Even Detroit this year, you know, has probably the best playoff rotation with Verlander and Sister and Scherzer and Anibal Sanchez. Um, you know, and they're up two games to nothing in their division series, but I don't know that anyone is necessarily looking at them as the, you know, the best team in the, in the playoffs, even though their their rotation is really good. Um, and so yesterday, I think, you know, is a, a good example of um, you know, when you have a, a starter perform well, that doesn't necessarily just mean you're going to win the game. The bullpen is a really big variable in the playoffs and uh, probably a bigger variable in October than it is in the regular season um, when you can really afford to go four, five, six innings with your bullpen if you need to be. Gio Gonzalez was extremely wild, but they were able to, um, you know, kind of let him get through five innings. But if he would have really gotten in trouble and started giving up some hits, they could have taken him out, you know, in the second or third inning if they needed to when he was walking the world. Um, and as it turns out, their bullpen was excellent down the stretch and didn't, didn't give up any runs in the last four innings. And so, um, you know, as good as Wainwright was, the, the Cardinals' bullpen ended up blowing the game late. And, uh, you know, I think this is one of those things that we're just going to have to see a, a little bit of a mindset adjustment on. And when people look at teams' pitching staffs, especially for October, they really right now focus on the starters, but the relievers will probably be more important variable in October.
0: Right. And uh, I guess having Tyler Moore is also very important?
1: Yeah, well, you know, there's always uh interesting bench guys who come up and make a name for themselves. And, you know, Tyler Moore is actually an interesting guy. He's uh, probably a better player than people understand and had a really nice rookie season for the Nationals. Uh I don't know that he's going to turn into a household name, but there's, uh you know, certainly been worse players than Tyler Moore who have uh become famous for clutch postseason hits. Uh Hopefully for the Nationals, he's not the new Juan Uribe, but, uh, you know, I think they're happy he came through
0: anyway. So, uh, I, I was writing about this series today in a, po- a post that just went up as we're talking, and, um, another thing that, that concerned me, and I'm assuming is concerning the Nationals, is Ryan Zimmerman's arm. I don't know if you were able yeah. to see that game, but, uh, he, his first, the first ball that he was asked to field, he threw over to first, uh, without incident, but at the same time, his mechanics were, decidedly awkward and um, not like what you'd see from normal Major League third baseman, not like you'd normally see from Ryan Zimmer when he's healthy. Uh, that actually uh, – that caused problems for the team later in the game. I think it was the eighth inning on a grand ball from David Fries. Uh, same sort of thing. A pretty – I mean a routine play. He just short-hopped it to Adam LaRoche who wasn't able to pick it up um, that uh, in that case that was a, that was almost worth um, negative 10% in terms of win probability added. Tyler Clipper got him out of it, but you got to look ahead. Uh, what does a team do when they have a great player like that, but who, who at this point might be a defensive liability?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the interesting thing is Zimmerman. It doesn't seem to be a health issue. This is something he's struggled with the last couple of years. It, it's possible it is associated with a shoulder injury, and you know, surgery might fix it. But it really seems to be more of a mental thing. Um, you know, when I was up in BC for Strasbourg's final start in the game the next day, uh, I saw Zimmerman make four or five plays very similar to last night, where uh, you know it was a routine ground ball. He had plenty of time, and he just basically psyched himself out and made a terrible throw and a couple times the Roach was able to bail him out, a couple times he wasn't, and, um, you know, it seems like he can make the play when he doesn't have time to think. So if he makes a diving play and just has to spin and throw, he's okay. If you hit a slow chopper to him and it's a, you know, backup pitcher doesn't run very well, there's a chance he's going to airmail the throw or, you know, miss the bag by five or six feet. And so right now it seems like it's more of a mental issue, and, you know, what they're going to do about it, I think they just have to grin and bear it and hope it doesn't raise its head in an important situation too often. They um, certainly can't move him to first base. This is the way Adam Roach is playing this year. And I think they want to bring LaRoach back. And so, you know, my guess is long-term they want to keep him at third base. Um, but this is uh, not an insignificant issue. I mean, if he's really got some kind of mental block where, you know, routine round balls are going to cause him to, you know, be a below-average defender, um, that's an issue. And, you know, where they play him is going to become an issue. And so, for this year, I think they don't have a choice but to Hope that it, it doesn't uh, bite him in the butt, but long term, there's a chance that Ryan Zimmerman could need to move to first base, um, which could affect their decision making on what they do with LaRoche and Mike Morse this offseason. It,
0: it, which is weird too, right? Because he's also, like, actually a plus defender if, if the throwing is even average.
1: Right. I mean, Zimmerman's range is well above average at third base. Uh, he's declined a little bit in the last couple of years. He's not quite as good as he was when he was uh, coming up through the minors in his first couple of years, and he was almost like a shortstop at third base, Um, but he's still an above-average defender in terms of range and motion and getting the balls, but the throwing problem is real and is not seeming to be going away.
0: Okay, Uh, moving on to uh, Orioles-Yankees. This is the series you're covering. Well, I should say, yeah, the one you're covering, the one that I thought I was covering uh, for our coverage, so sorry about that.
1: Uh, it's okay. I think your preview is actually very different from mine, so we just uh, displayed a little bit of East Coast bias. And yeah. uh, you know, it's always good to to give prominence to undercovered teams like the Yankees.
0: That's true. It, it is hard to find uh, really anything about them out there. Um, yeah. Now the Orioles, of course, won a number of one-run games uh, over the course of the season, and apart from apart from whether that's you know, good fortune or if, if there's some skill being exhibited. They did have a, a, a pretty excellent bullpen, um, especially towards the end of the season, I guess. I don't know. Maybe uh, I'm making that up. I'm, over the course of the entire season, let's say. Uh, in any case, point being, Jim Johnson came into the game, what was it, 8th inning, ninth inning, with a one-run lead? Is that what happened?
1: No, he came into a, a ninth inning tied situation,
0: 2-2. Oh, well, he should have done better than he did.
1: Yes, it was a non-save situation, which is getting uh, some, some notable play because he was terrible.
0: Oh, my God, yeah. He gave up five runs, or the, the yeah. Orioles did eventually, but... Yes, he he gave, got I
1: think he was charged with four of them, yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, he shouldn't have done that. Um, yeah. What happened? Is that just, again, I mean, the Yankees are a good-hitting team. That's good. Right,
1: I mean, he, so Jim Johnson's uh, primary pitch is a sinker. He gets a ton of ground balls. He doesn't get a lot of strikeouts for a, for a closer or any relief pitcher, really. Um, and for whatever reason, I'm his sinker was not sinking. He threw a pitch to Martin that was belt high and sat down the middle and, you know, uh, Martin was able to jump on it and basically for the entire night, everything he tried to throw down in the zone was a little too high and Yankee hitters took advantage.
0: Right. And that, that's is a bad thing to have happen because these are what we call high leverage innings, Dave Cameron.
1: Right. I think the problem with having a guy like Johnson as your closer, not that Johnson isn't very good uh, and a useful piece of a bullpen, but he's kind of a one-trick pony. So, like, you know, if his sinker isn't working, there's not a lot else he can do uh, in order to get hitters out. And so, you know, I think with uh, a lot of premium closers, they've got two two plus pitches usually, sometimes three, but usually more like two, where if their fastball command is off, they can go to their breaking ball, or if they're, uh, you know, if they have a changeup, they can throw that. Um with Johnson it's really here comes my sinker and good luck. And so when his sinker's not working, um, you know, there's not a lot the Orioles can do about it. They can't, you know, call other pitches, they can't really adjust their game plan because he's only really got one thing he can do. He does it really well. Um but I would say that of the playoff closers, Johnson's one that, you know, maybe a little less uh uh I don't know what the right word is. I'd have a little less confidence in Johnson than some of the others.
0: He had, uh, I think it was like 13, I don't know the numbers right in front of me, but like maybe like 13 more saves than strikeouts this year? Yeah, he's not not a strikeout <laughs> guy.
1: Uh, and he got a lot of really, uh, you know, interesting saves where, you know, a couple guys would get on base and he'd get out of it or he'd get a double play. Uh, you know, I think his skill set is really better suited to like a 7th or 8th inning role where if the starter puts on several guys with no out or one out, you could go to a guy like Johnson and get a double play. Um, that's really kind of how these high ground ball pitch to contact relievers are usually used. Uh, bringing him in a situation where there's no one on base, the ground ball isn't quite as useful. Uh, and a lot of times you'd rather have a strikeout in a in a you know one run game where you don't want to give up any base runners or any runs. Um, so you know, not that I think Johnson should lose his job, but I wouldn't be shocked if he wasn't a closer. You know, for the next five or six years, he might get another year or two before his stuff starts to degrade, degrade a little bit, and he ends up back in a more of a ground ball specialist setup role.
0: Now, we've heard of – there are obviously uh, – there have been talented relief pitchers with just – well, there's at least one of them who throws only a cut, fa- cut fastball. It's Mariano Rivera. Um, unless we count Mark DeFelice, does he count? I think he threw mostly cut uh, fastballs.
1: Yeah, he threw that 82-mile-an-hour thing, whatever it was. But I don't, I don't think we can count him as a good reliever.
0: Ken, uh, Kenley Jansen uh, throws mostly uh, a cut fastball.
1: Right, but it's, uh, you know, I think the, the guys who succeed with this one pitch kind of thing get swing and misses with this one pitch, right? So like, uh, they can change locations, they can, you know, kind of, uh, mix up the planes, uh, mix up velocity. Getting swings and misses, I think, is a little different than getting ground balls. And that's why, you know, I think Johnson's historically unique in that you just don't see these extreme 65% ground ball guys who don't get any strikeouts in the ninth inning too often.
0: Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a good point. Old Jimmy Johnson. Old Jimmy Johnson. So, I don't know, Cameron. Isn't he
1: the, the, the Cowboys coach with the crazy hair?
0: He was, yeah. yeah. So, listen, we just talked about the playoffs, but that's only, what, eight teams at this point? What's going on? Uh, yeah. Uh, the other 22 teams, we had a couple of managers hired. Terry Francona was hired Jim uh, by the Indians. Jim Tracy was fired by the Rockies. But, uh, is it just, it's sort of a mandate, isn't it, from above that, uh, they shouldn't, they're not supposed to do too much? Uh,
1: you yeah, sort of. So, like, you know, Bud Sealy doesn't want them making news on, uh, days where there are playoff games, and right now there's, you know, playoff games every day. So, usually in the wake of the, uh, regular season ending, you'll see teams make, you know, managerial changes that they've been planning on for a while. Um, but there's, you know, we're certainly not going to see significant moves yet teams are so formulating their plans, they're having their meetings, they're coming up trying to decide what to do. I think over the next couple of weeks we'll see some teams decide, hey, look, here's the thing that we want to do, we're going to make this change, and, the, and Major League Baseball will essentially ask them to uh, plan that announcement on a day where there isn't a game. So in between the, the World Series or something, uh, baseball prefers to keep the spotlight on the game itself.
0: Okay. And uh, anything exciting you forthcoming now? I mean, we got, you know, you and I are going to talk within a, in a week But uh, I guess, is there any moment you're looking forward to in the playoffs?
1: Um, You know, I think the elimination games are always the most exciting. I think last week we got a nice taste of uh, some elimination baseball. Kind of, you know, that A's-Rangers series ender wasn't an elimination game, but the division title was important, and so, you know, that was exciting. I thought Friday was uh, interesting, if nothing else. Um, And so, you know, I think any time we can get game five, winner take all, those are the the games, the, the moments that kind of matter, so... Uh, I'm rooting for all of these series to go five games. That's probably not going to happen. But I think in the interest of uh entertainment and uh, kind of important playoff baseball, those game fives or game sevens are the ones that you really want to root for. So uh, for the next few days, go Giants and go A's.
0: Yeah, I know. Go A's. That is, uh, well, is don't know if it's upsetting, but it's unfortunate. You'd like to see more of a series there probably.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's actually been pretty close. It's not like they got blown out. Uh, and, you know, game two, I thought it was really exciting. You know, they certainly had chances to win. If Coco Crisp doesn't pull a Josh Hamilton, they probably win that game. Um, you know, and the the I will give you runs through wild pitches inning was kind of fun as both teams just kept throwing the ball to the backstop and allowing runners to score. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think it's something the A's haven't been competitive. Um, but they're, you know, down 2-0. Um, with a, the prospect of facing Justin Orlando one more time, their odds certainly aren't
0: very good. All right, I'm done with this. Kay. I, mostly, I'm excited about the Arizona Fall League. That's mostly right. Mine. You 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 hate the playoffs. Yeah, I don't. Well, hate is a strong word, but I don't care for them. Uh, again, it's too much excitement. I you know, I I can't I can't I can't deal with it.
1: Yeah. I, I, well, you maybe should follow a more boring sport like football. <laughs>
0: I don't want to do that either. I like it there every day. The Arizona Fall League is about to be what are we talk about. The seventh. This is the seventh run. The eighth already. So the Arizona Fall League starts tomorrow. Big Arizona Fall League starting tomorrow. Is Mike Zunino going to be there? Or is he? Uh, Zunino is going.
1: To, yeah, he's going to the Arizona Fall League. I think the Mariners uh, are sending a uh, a decent representation this year because a bunch of guys missed time with injuries and uh, need need to get some work in.
0: You know, I was looking back uh, over last year's numbers, and you know who acquitted himself nicely was Forrest Snow. Who has a funny name. Yeah, he uh, does. And uh, But he uh, he pitched well last year. What, what happened to him this year?
1: He command fell apart. So, like, last year in the Arizona Fall League, Forrest Snow was a kid out of the University of Washington, I think he was, like, a 27th round pick or something, uh, started throwing hard and threw strikes and pitched really well and got people excited and drew a lot of Doug Dixer comparisons. And then he showed up in Tacoma, and he didn't have any command whatsoever, and he couldn't throw strikes, and he was walking the world, and they demoted him to A and put him in the bullpen. And it didn't really help, so... Uh when you're a command guy without a good, without good stuff and then your command goes away, your prospects uh stick the hit.
0: Yeah, you think? And that might, yeah. yeah, that might happen. Yeah. Well alright. Okay. Well the Arizona Fall is gonna start. I I'd suggest everyone watch that. Like, except you can't.
1: You're yeah, so. right. Everyone should go to Arizona and ignore the playoffs.
0: Yeah, but yeah, that requires going to Arizona. So there's a lot of problems with this. All right. Cameron. Well, going,
1: going to Arizona in October isn't terrible, because right now it's like 45 degrees outside, so Arizona actually sounds okay.
0: It's, yeah. Going to Arizona
1: in July is terrible.
0: Yeah, don't go there. Don't go there in July. I think the AFL games might be free, or at least very inexpensive.
1: Yeah, I don't think they charge.
0: Yeah. Uh, I've never been to one. You ever been to one? I've never been to the Arizona Fall League, actually. It seems pretty amusing to me. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, if you...
1: uh Oh, we're looking for a reason to take a vacation in October. It's not a terrible baseball vacation to take. Uh, for me, I like the playoffs, so it's always—do I really want to skip out on postseason baseball to watch a bunch of mediocre prospects play? The answer is usually
0: no. They're not—they're not, not mediocre usually. I mean, some of them are. Some of them are the very best the, ones. The,
1: the, the pitchers are all mediocre. Like, yes, yeah. you can say, oh, I'm going to get see two leading prospects play against each other, but they never actually match up. They just kind of like, one watches the other hit at the same time.
0: Right. Uh, 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 the, well, Garrett Cole, Garrett Cole was in the Arizona Fall League last year.
1: Okay, so there was one pitching There's prospect. one of
0: Pitching prospect, yeah. 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 yeah.
1: yeah. Right. The Arizona Fall League not known for high quality pitching. And combined with the environments, uh, you know, it's always kind of fun to watch. Like, I think Nolan Arenado last year, like, put himself on the map with a monster that a fall league and, then, you know, actually faced real pitching in kind of real environments this year. And everyone remembered, like, oh, this guy doesn't really have power. So, um, you know, I think the AFL is kind of uh, a haven for overrating prospects who have big two week stretches. But, uh, you know, it can be fun anyway.
0: Yeah. I'm the, yeah. It's fine. I mean, I don't necessarily overrate guys based on it. I try to keep my head on the camera.
1: You you overrate guys based on their lack of tools or future.
0: Yeah, that's my that's my that's what I'm looking for in a player. Yeah,
1: right.
0: That's my, that's my big my big criteria. All right, let's stop this. But it was fine. I thought it was good. It worked out all right.
1: Sure, it wasn't the worst.
0: No, it wasn't. There's was a bunch of the worst. Anyway, uh, we'll say thank you to now uh, to you now. As uh, as Dave, Dave Cameron, thanks a lot for joining us.
1: Yeah, my pleasure as always.
0: Yeah. That's Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been FanGraphs Audio. If you can believe it.